You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. So yesterday was the 18th anniversary of 9-11, which means that the United States has been in Afghanistan for almost 18 years at this point. It seemed like there might be a peace agreement coming sometime soon, but then this weekend, President Trump sent a tweet canceling a meeting with the Taliban and blew up the peace process, at least temporarily. And so now feels like a good time to step back and ask, why has the war been going on for so long? And more specifically, why does it seem like the United States can't defeat the Taliban, a much smaller and weaker enemy? That's what we're going to be diving into today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here with Alex Ward. Jen Williams is out, but in her place, we have Ben Pocker, who is Vox's managing editor for news. Hello, Ben. Hi, it's good to be here. Ben, you've covered foreign stuff for a long time. How does it feel to be back in the saddle, at least for a morning? I'm just thrilled to finally have this invitation to the Worldly Studio. <laughs> it's got big maps of the world and globes. It's everything I actually imagined it would be. No, none of that is true. Ben is just making we, stuff up. We actually have fake news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is our first instance of fake news on the show. Thanks, no, Ben. You're really bringing stuff in. It is my pleasure. Uh, in a previous life, I was the executive editor at Foreign Policy Magazine, spent a lot of time thinking about and covering Afghanistan. And the wars against terrorism. So to be able to be with you guys and think about this again is great. Yay. Uh, all right. Now, that's the happiest we're going to be all episode because this is a very depressing topic. Alex, why don't you start us off? Give a sort of rough primer on why fighting a foe like the Taliban is so difficult for the U.S. military. So I think it's a fair question to ask, and we've had people asking us, like, wait a minute, the United States has helped defeat the Nazis. We've won multiple wars before. Why are the Taliban and al-Qaeda in Afghanistan so hard to beat? And I think the reason stems from the kind of wars that we're fighting. So if we look back at history first, like let's look at World War II. So wars used to be kind of like the Super Bowl. You had two teams fighting each other. They met on a battlefield. And the U.S. military was structured and has been structured for many years to fight these sort of bigger state-on-state wars. Of course, things have changed throughout. There's a lot of nuance here. But the main point is that was wars for quite some time. Enter the Afghanistan war— and we are now fighting counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. Those are separate styles. 
Yeah, and the strategy of an insurgent organization, uh, sort of across the board, by definition, what an insurgency is, is not to fight those battles, right? Not to fight a big pitched engagement. What they do is they stage hit-and-run style attacks on uh, U.S. and Afghan targets where they kill a few people, then they run away, and they disappear. And the reason this is difficult for military to deal with is the problem is not being able to beat them in a battle, the U.S. Will, will probably never lose a pitched battle with the Taliban uh, if they have sufficient ability to bring their forces to bear. It's that the Taliban then disappears into the population. The U.S. military can't find them. They, they don't even know who the Taliban fighters are. I'd also add that the unique geography of Afghanistan is also uh, a potential, is a hindrance to the U.S. efficacy in this war. There is a reason that there is this old cliche about Afghanistan being the graveyard of empire. It is stymied efforts of much greater armies, much greater countries, nations like Russia, like Britain, and now the United States, because it is a fundamentally different place than these societies and fundamentally different than the U.S. It imposes different asks upon militaries, upon the in, the instruments of state. Um, well, and, what do you mean by that? Can you be more specific? Well, look, it's a place that has multiple languages that are very different. And we know that when the United States entered the conflict in Afghanistan after 9-11, there were only a handful of people in the State Department, in the Pentagon, who actually spoke any of these languages. It is an extremely difficult place in terms of its geography. It is remote. It doesn't have roads. It has very few places with which to supply a modern army in terms of troop movements, in terms of munitions. There are big cities, Kabul, other places like that, but it is a war that is being fought in the hinterlands, and it is very difficult to fight that kind of World War II-style battle that Alex referenced in, in a place like Afghanistan. With the absence of these language proficiencies, these connections to the local population that the Taliban fighters do have, uh, it seems very difficult to, and in fact, demonstrably has been very difficult to crush them in a, in a military sense, one that would be implied by the force superiority the United States has. You know, you cannot kill every Taliban insurgent with surgical precision, which is the way that the U.S. military likes to approach counterinsurgency planning. There are casualties. There are extreme casualties, women and children, that turn a population against a force like the U.S. Army, which, even if it comes in with the best intentions, is still perceived as an insurgent foreign force. The Taliban, on the, on the flip side, has used wide-scale carnage to intimidate a population, to say, hey, look, we are here. We are willing to go to any extent to reap our aims, to sow fear and violence, whereas the U.S. comes in at a fundamentally different level. They have a, a higher order of care for a civilian population that doesn't necessarily want them there, that doesn't trust them, that doesn't know how long they will be there. And that's an extremely difficult sort of scale to reset. And I don't want to make this sound like in this conversation that it's impossible for a counterinsurgent to beat an insurgent, or even for the U.S. military in the way that it's set up to beat an insurgency. In, in Iraq in the mid-2000s, the U.S. did, right, arguably, depending on who you're talking to. And But there was a, a series of circumstances that led to what was then al-Qaeda in Iraq becoming much, much weaker and falling out until it eventually morphed into ISIS and come back into the world, right? And some of those were about the nature of the organization itself. Sometimes some insurgencies are just more effective than others. They're better at being insurgents. AQI, uh, in its instance, was brutal and alienated a lot of people that are dependent on for support. The Taliban, is they're not like nice people, but they've uh, done a series of things 
that have been designed to bureaucratize and to ingratiate themselves to the local population. Uh, they are, in fact, quite cruel to defectors and, and and people they think might, you know, go quit and join another insurgent organization or go be spies for the Afghan government. They'll viciously kill them. They also, though, have stepped up their service provisions for people in rural Afghanistan, the goal being to win over their support and make it easier to hide inside that population. So when, you, when you're faced with a, you know, difficult terrain, a, an insurgent organization that's more competent and smarter than other ones, right, it becomes significantly harder to deal with. Sure. And this is an argument that I think is, it might be a little bit overvalued. I think, look, Afghanistan for hundreds of years has been uh, ruled by tribes, by and large, by strongmen, by tribes, by traditional familial bonds. The Taliban, when they came to power in the late 1990s, ruled with an iron fist. Yes, they did bring clean water and services and a degree of order to what was an extremely fractured post-Soviet, post-communist, chaotic environment. I also think that, you know, if we're if we're being really honest about this, they ruled with a you know a tyrannical efficiency. And maybe that's what you mean by service provision, but they certainly imposed their will upon a large segment of the population. And uh, at risk of sounding awful, I want to give the Taliban a little bit of credit here because they've— You do uh, not under any circumstances <laughs> got to hand it to them. No, but I, I guess what I'm trying to—like, they've done a couple of things—again, I hate saying it well. One of them is, of course, Taliban members uh, have learned insurgent tactics for, for a long time. Two, they've actually somewhat uh, liberalized, especially since the United States went in, because they know that sort of that old-style hardline rule was not necessarily popular. And but let's be fair. They're still not, you know, saying that girls and women can go to school or not wear the headdress. I mean, sure. this is liberalism of fractional Oh, oh no, of course, of course. I'm not saying that they are by, by any means an example, but they have been – they have actually been somewhat nicer to women, giving them slightly more rights. They have – um, protected minorities a little bit more than they used to. So, like, this has been part of a de- of a design. This has been part of a design to appeal to the population so that if if and when the United States goes, they might have more support. And they kind of see this as a longer-term issue. They, a captured Taliban member um, famously sort of said, like, you guys have the watches, we have the time. And this is one of the main sort of thinking uh, behind the Taliban here is that, like, eventually the U.S. will go. Eventually they, will not defe- they won't defeat us and we'll still be here. And so inevitably when the United States leaves, we just need to make sure that we have support among the population and some control, and actually a lot of control, uh, in order for us to get back to power. I mean, was this all a waste of time, right? Like, is the one natural question is, did the United States waste 18 years? Yeah, mostly. Uh, But to be clear, I mean, there was a time early in the war where the U.S. was able to wrest back a lot of control, right? We kicked the Taliban out. We had control over some territories. The Taliban clawed some of it, a lot of it back, actually, and they're still doing so. Um, The administration's new stance is we're going to start killing a lot more Taliban. We're going to advance operations. And uh, there has been some recent indications that we've clawed some territories back. So, okay. So it is possible that we can keep doing this seesaw with the Taliban and maybe eventually, um, you know, have an advantage. But do we really want to be there that long? Do we really want to uh, wait out this fight, add more resources, and, and you know— put more blood and treasure on the line. I don't think we do. That's that's like kind of a good encapsulation of it, right? Because as long as I can remember, it's felt like a stalemate, right? No, and exactly no one is. has been able to decisively defeat the other side. And then the U.S. is just kind of stuck there with concern that if it does leave, then the Afghan government on its own might itself be decisively defeated. And that, that point about the Afghan government uh, 
is, I think, really striking because the U.S. rationale for being there so long has been that this government would fail without us. Uh, but why is that government so weak? We've been talking a lot about the Taliban, but now we're going to take a short break and afterwards get into some detail about the problems with the Afghan government. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Property Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Welcome back. We are talking about the cheery topic of U.S. failures in Afghanistan and why it seems like the United States can't win this war. And we've been focusing primarily on the American enemy right now, the Taliban and its association with al-Qaeda, what has made it a relatively effective insurgent organization. But there's sort of a flip side of the story. It's it's the U.S. is trying to build up a partner government. So when it leaves, there will be this central administrative state that can rule Afghanistan and prevent the Taliban from coming back into place. Except this central government the U.S. has been supporting has been very bad at being a central government. And, and I want to talk about why, right? Because I'm not sure I fully understand the reasons. Ben, talk to me about the Afghan government. Maybe the dirty word of this 18-year-long conflict is that it has morphed from a counterinsurgency war from Delta Force and Special Forces in the caves in the north of Afghanistan to really an effort of nation building. And that's a thing that the United States hasn't done particularly well, doesn't have great uh, attention span for, and they face a particularly problematic landscape with regard to Afghanistan. As I said before, it has been dominated by strongmen, warlords, tribal uh, associations, familial ties that are entirely alien to a Western American concept of government. And that has been extraordinarily difficult. Compound that with the fact that you're rotating troops and leaders through. I mean, how many of our listeners here can actually name, you know, a general beyond McChrystal or Petraeus? And it's hard to even remember them. Those were years ago. We've been constantly rooting through, you know, our best and finest military commanders for a couple of years at a time with administrations that waver uh, in terms of their commitment to this conflict. Uh, whereas, 
you know, in the on the Afghan in the ground in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, nominally the capital, but not a place that exercises full control over the country. It has been extraordinarily problematic. You've had, as Alex said, corruption. You've had leadership that is rent by tribal factions um, and allegiances to part of the country, but not other parts. This is, you know, a distillation of hundreds of years of tribal association and conflict. But it is an extraordinarily difficult place to build a government from the start. And we started with, you know, importing Hamid Karzai after a conference in Bonn in September, October of 2001, bringing in a leader from exile who had a certain degree of authority, um, but was really someone living outside the country. And not to say that that was the original sin, but that was emblematic of so many of the failures. I, I, I think, Ben, I don't know if I'd put as much weight on uh, hundreds of years of history and, and tribalism as you would, but I would just say, under any circumstances, it's quite difficult to demolish a government. I mean, we did just destroy the Taliban in 2001 and then try to put in a new one in its place, especially one that doesn't have much of a history of bureaucratization, of a civil service, of... Uh, all of these different things that make an effective state in the mold of what the United States believes an effective state to be and trying to install one when people are just like, well, I could just take some of this money that is going to the central state and give it to my family and my friends. Corruption is is almost a natural state of things. It's very difficult for... Uh, any government to get rid of it, uh, let alone one that's been propped up by foreigners. Sure. I mean, look at the way that we think about our government, right? There's an inherent sense of legitimacy that is born of the vote, that is born of government services that we give the sort of imprimatur and the agency to our government. Afghanistan's government in 2001 had zero of that. They were brought in from the outside, imposed by a foreign power, you know, at the tip of the spear by guns and force as the Taliban fled into villages and out of the country. Um, and they didn't have communications. They didn't have money. They didn't have a way to give services to these villages and places cut off that had never heard of these leaders who had been brought in from Germany. So it was an enormously difficult enterprise right from the beginning. It's worth being specific about what this kind of endemic corruption looks like in Afghanistan. It's pretty nutty. So the U.S. has an uh, inspector general called SIGAR that looks at Afghanistan. And they just did a report this August uh, on the state of the Afghan government and the U.S. war effort there. And they found something really astonishing, which is that the size of the Afghan military had gone down by 42,000 soldiers. This wasn't because you know 42,000 people quit the military or defected. It's because those 42,000 people literally did not exist. They were basically fictions on paper for people to pay out money to themselves or people they wanted to be paying. This is a problem called ghost soldiers. Uh, and it's been indefinitely in Afghanistan as long as the U.S. has been doing this uh, nation military building effort. It's a really serious issue and one that illustrates the degree to which the attempt to construct a military is hampered by corruption and a lack of institutional restraints on individual behavior. So I, I want to take a step back and, and understand just the audacity of that project, right? So one, it, we decided to not only install a government, but try to create a democratic legitimate one, and then on top of that, train and build up a military force to defend that government and also act like a normal military. Uh, that's an in, that's huge. That There's no wonder it requires 18 years plus to do that. And it's another reason why I think when we talk about, well, can the U.S. win in Afghanistan or why hasn't it, it's because we've 
built up the goals. We've basically been like, we have to stay until Afghanistan can govern itself, until it can work like a Western-style state. And that was always going to be a decades-long project. Um, The original goals of, like, defeat al-Qaeda, we've kind of done that to a certain extent in Afghanistan. There are still a bunch of terrorist groups there. Uh, Defeat the Taliban, we're kind of losing on that. They're gaining ground, although there is uh, information lately that it looks like we are starting to kill a lot of them and gain back some territory. So, okay. So that's also a possibility. But, man, if the goal now is stay until a government can govern itself and a country can govern itself and be Western style, then no, like, of course, this is going to be a decade. You know, honestly, I think the U.S. gave up on this notion that Afghanistan would ever be a Western style government or state many years ago. And it's just sort of drifted into this bizarre limbo where leaving isn't the right answer. Putting more troops in certainly isn't the right answer. Um, but look, I mean, this was a war from the uh, from the get-go that was supported and won in large part because of Mujahideen, sort of guerrilla armies that were supported and allied with the U.S. Did they love the U.S.? No, not really. But maybe they hated the Taliban more. The Taliban had come into their regions. And that, like, we talk about the Afghan National Army and all its myriad problems, and that is true. There are still other armies all across Afghanistan that the U.S. has supported or hasn't disarmed that are still armed, that still have their own allegiances, that still have their own uh, ideals and missions and goals. And it's this complicated morass. So the the idea, I think, that this would be ever be a state, at least, at least in the sort of fundamental thinking of U.S. military and strategic planners, that there's only one army, that there's only one government, that went out the window a long time ago. It's, it's also— strange the way the U.S. military has approached it to a degree, right? Like, we've had this plan of not only let's build up a kind of liberal democratic state, but let's build up a professional big-style military. And so that means, like, building bases that have a full electrical infrastructure. And in one of my favorite examples that I read from uh, someone who uh, was a U.S. military officer there, uh, treadmills that they just put in there. And these places didn't have electricity, these forward-operating bases. So they'd put in these treadmills in these bases, and no one would ever use them. They'd stay in plastic wrap because Afghanistan didn't have the capacity to run a military base along the lines of what a U.S. military base might look like. It just we were imposing our own pattern of what a military should look like on Afghan realities, not adapting to them. And and I think in in some ways, uh, that's the thought that I'd like to leave you all, and we'd all like to leave you with today, is that trying to make Afghanistan fit the image of the United States or an image that is in the American's head about what it ought to look like is a doomed project. And one that was never going to succeed no matter how many administrations tried to do it. And so I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, and I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, review Worldly, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next week. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. 
You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.